Welcome to the John Brown University Chapel podcast, recorded in the historic Cathedral of the Ozarks in Salem Springs, Arkansas. Well, in case you're looking out for our guest speaker today, there was a glitch in the matrix, and he's coming Thursday. So I was slated to, to preach Thursday, but here I am today. Come on, thank you, thank you. I work much better under pressure, so this probably is much better today than it would have been Thursday, as poor as it might be. Oh, I love you. Um, so how are we doing? <laughs> Good. Before I get up here and, and introduce folks or, or preach, oftentimes I find myself praying this prayer. God, would you uh, give me a little insight into the spiritual state of the room? Would you give me a, a little intuition about where, where things are flowing? And sometimes he does that. Uh, and this is especially important that we're continuing to be in two spaces. Uh, I don't know you guys all yet. I don't know what you've woken up to today or where you're at, but um, God does. But other times I'm sort of off, like I'll get up here and I'm thinking, yeah, there's gonna be like some energy today and it's like there's a big collective yawn. You know, and other times um, I'm like, oh, because of where they're at in the semester, it's probably gonna be tiring. And like today you guys have some collective energy that's, fo- that's fo- uh, fostering, so. But really, it's either way is okay as we show up as a group. Like, there's not one way better than the other. What's really important is that we show up in sincerity. That we show up as we are. And when we do that, that's when we begin to feel the mighty hand of God come to work on us. And I think sometimes we kind of show up as imposters or we're not quite sure how we're doing today. And we show up and then we're kind of wondering, where's the Spirit of God? What's He doing? But we show up as we are. And um, that's... That's uh, awesome. But really the truth is, is that you and I are kind of all still getting to know each other. I'm so new here. I'm learning the, the rhythms of the semester and uh, what you guys are all dealing with. So I thank you for those of you who have been willing to share your stories with me so far. Um, I think the more that I get to know you guys, the more that I want to know. Uh, so, well, there's more, more to say about some good first impressions of this place, but I wanted to get us as soon as possible under the covering of the scriptures today. So let's pray. Father, we take a second before we open your word to recognize that you are the author. And um, as was recently proclaimed here in this space, uh, you gave us your word. Uh, You are the word. And we recognize that today. Uh, We want a word from you. We want to hear what you would have to say to us. And so, uh, again, I don't know where each of these guys and gals are today, Father, but you do. So I pray that we might uh, start with sincerity, start with where we truly are, whether it's resisting or feeling a little rebellion in us or feeling excited and eager and joyful. Wherever we're at today, I pray that we would be truthful with you and would we allow you to meet us there. So Jesus, we open our hearts to you in your name. Amen. Right, so we're jumping back into the Gospel of Mark, and today we're in Mark 11, if you've got your scriptures with you. And here's how it reads. As they, and they being Jesus, and up to 120 of those who have given up their life for him, their life situations, their jobs, some of them gave up their extended families, careers, their security, to follow him. They all approached Jerusalem together and came to Bethany and Bethpage at the Mount of Olives. And Jesus sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you and just as you enter it, 
you will find a colt or a young donkey tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. So all of our gospels, as Mark does here, gives us this moment where Jesus turns his face towards Jerusalem. And this is it. This is, we're right in the heart of it now. Uh, This is the week of his death during the Feast of Passover around A.D. 33. He'll spend his final week in Jerusalem teaching in the public spaces of, of the city, which in this case is the temple complex. And in five short days, he'll be offering up his life for the sake of the world. This last push across the finish line of his journey to the cross begins with this moment today where he takes a a young donkey and rides it into Jerusalem and where he'll take it upon himself to clean the temple out of the money changers and booth owners, an act of authority after which the dust settles of the tables that he'll turn over uh, elicits one main question from the religious authorities. Who gave you this authority? Why do you think that you're the one that can tell us what's wrong with our religiosity? Why do you think you can be the one who speaks for God into our ancient faith? See, these are questions of a people who feel threatened people who know that their way of life is being called deeply into question. These are people ready to fight for their sick and infected religion, which had overtaken one of Israel's most beloved festivals, the annual celebration of Passover. So over the course of my life so far, I've learned a little bit about the importance of getting free from sick infected religion and how tricky that business can be. I've seen lots of spiritual health in my life uh, in every place that I've been, but I've also seen uh, that every place that I've gone, most communities need some help. They need a spiritual doctor, and there's no shame in that. It's just reality. And so after finishing my doctoral work, I was excited that the Lord was calling me to become a pastor where I could enter uh, as the leader of a spiritual community and find the pockets of health which existed there and then as a group find the places that were sick and infected and do some healing work. Um, I found myself for the first time as a pastor. And one of the weirdest things was when uh, a few months in, the the kids of the community, we had a church of about 200 people. There were 80 little kids that were in the church. People described it as a a church of kids climbing on top of kids. It was was really chaos, which is beautiful. Um, They started calling me Pastor Keith. I thought, well, this is weird. I'm sort of now their authority figure. There's lots of pressure there. Uh, And I I, I grew really to love that community deeply. Uh, as the trust and relationship group. And I ended up pastoring that church for five years. This is what God had me doing uh, just previous to this. As in any church, you've got these moments of sheer joy uh, and others of sheer conflict. It's like this beautiful cacophony. Uh, My church, I think, was filled probably with a little higher ratio of people who were dealing with faith struggles Um, For some, it was because the church had hurt them and they were infected by the church. 
Others were processing some great loss in their life. For the first time in their life, they had lost someone they loved. You know, and, and that's different. When, when there's, I mean, loss is all around us. If we just take a moment to see how many graveyards exist in the world, we know that loss is all around us. But we really don't feel that loss in a really struggling kind of way until we lose something or someone that we really, truly love. Uh, for others, they didn't know what the problem was. They thought to themselves, um, I just can't believe anymore what I used to believe. And there's lots of legitimate reasons for faith struggle. Uh, but I think truly and honestly, there was some people who just delighted in the attention of having a faith crisis. Uh, and some, I think, had probably a secret gladness that they could fly in the face of God. There's kind of this uh, secret uh, delight in doing that. And I tell you, it's hard work as a pastor trying to discern and distinguish what's at play in a faith crisis and learning to tend to it properly. And Jesus tells us that he will not break a bruised reed, which means that he will not use too much force um, for a person dealing with a broken kind of sadness. Isn't that amazing that he can see that and he won't push through if, he'll break a, if he knows it will break us. But then there's times, like in this part of his life, where he'll discern something different than brokenness. He'll discern spiritual rebellion. And that's just the problem in terms of the difference of the two. They present themselves the same, brokenness and spiritual rebellion. You really, at first, can't tell the difference between the two in a person who's struggling. And the way that I learned to tell the difference was that the people who were dealing with brokenness were open to my presence as their pastor in their life. I was a legitimate authority in the life of this community, and the people, there, I mean, I didn't need to know everything, of course, but you could feel the difference between someone who was open to me and wanting to, me to be part of the journey, and, other, and the others who really worked very hard to keep me out of their business. I think that's a kind of a telltale sign for me between brokenness and rebellion. Uh, so, but it took some work to figure out the difference, and it's important work because the wrong application of response can be fatal. Like a laser-focused rebuke to someone who's truly broken really will break them. But coddling rebellion, coddling a spirit of rebellion only gives fuel to that fire. And part of Jesus' worth and why he's so amazing is that he can always tell the difference between the two and he will apply the right solution, the right healing to, to the situation. Um, and, we've, you know, and he'll do it every time. And that's exactly what he was up to when he came on a donkey into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday as a skillful authority of great worth. In some ways, this whole semester has been about bringing us to this point. Dr. Pollard, Tracy, Dr. Simpson, Dr. Vila, Dr. Song, Dr. Bruce, and myself, we've all opened up this, uh, the different moments in Jesus' life and have emphasized not just who Jesus was, not just his identity, but also his tremendous worth. We've already seen that Jesus has become a popular teacher, a powerful healer, and he talks about himself in ways you'd only expect God would talk. And a crucial part of the life of faith that we have is that we must keep confident that Jesus is the worthiest source of devotion. We must keep confident that Jesus 
is the worthiest source of devotion. I mean, we could be talking about prayer this semester, how it works, how to have a prayer life. We could talk about God's heart for justice, which is true and, and good to talk about. We can talk about hope and how to cultivate hope. We could talk about forgiveness or how to relate to our money so that we are uh, in control of it rather than controlling us. All of these things are good, uh, and we will talk about some of this stuff in the future. But for this semester, we've been talking about this key to the life of faith. Faith is this ongoing choice of putting our devotion in Jesus in order to be freed now and forever into true life. We must choose to be devoted to Jesus and not to other vying imposter sources of devotion. And in order to be devoted to Jesus and to keep our devotion there, we must keep confident that he is the most worthy source. And so as Jesus rides towards Jerusalem as humanity's king, the defender of the cosmos, we must pay attention in this moment how skillfully discerning he is. He heads straight to the heart of the matter and heads to the temple, this cosmic center of the ancient universe. And what he saw there was not a free place of worship, but a courtyard, courtyard full of commerce not money serving the freedom of creation, but humans wrapped up in the chains of currency, which was only there to prop up the sin of Israel leaders. What ha was happening was this system of commerce, which was supposed to be outside the place of prayer, had come into the place of prayer, and it was further separating humanity from God. And Jesus takes it all in, and like a good leader, he doesn't just rush into action. He takes a moment to discern what's going on here, and he walks away. He goes home to, where, or to the place he was uh, living or uh, visiting, place where he was staying, uh, and comes back the next morning. And as those storm clouds of, of Jesus were gathering, he travels to the temple again, and he goes by a fig tree and curses it. And, making it to be a symbol for the temple. I mean, although it looked like it had life and abundant, uh, abundance of life, really it was barren, fruitless. And as he passed by, he made sure his disciples heard it. May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And the next day the tree had withered up from its roots. But after his arrival the next morning, he came into the temple and he starts clearing it out of money changers and booth owners. He wouldn't even let anyone pass through the temple that was trying to walk through it. And he cried out this phrase, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you, you have made it a den of robbers. My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. With this verse and our larger purpose of examining Jesus' worth in mind, let's unpack for a few minutes the core of his critique here. The temple was intended to be a house of prayer, but it had become the den of robbers. First, what is prayer? Prayer is this ancient human impulse that's embedded deeply in us to offer ourselves up to something more 
bigger and beyond us, to ask someone with more power than us to intervene, hold us, bring us into the depths of the meaning of our life. And the temple, the temple was intended to be this safe space to bring those depths of our desires and pour them out in confidence, a space designed to hold our aspirations and draw them upward to God. God intends that humans, that we find ample room in our life to bring our deepest desires to him. But that's not what the temple had become. It had become a den of robbers. But what's the den of robbers? A den, we often consider dens as a hole in the ground, underground, a place where a bunch of animals live and have dug out a place to, to be. It's a place burrowed in the dark corners of the earth, rabbits, Skunks, mice, woodchucks, chipmunks, weasels, rats, beavers. You can Google what lives in burrows and dens. And those aren't all bad animals. Some of them were like, I don't want to be that. Uh, and Jesus comes and he says, quoting a couple prophets, rather than a place of spiritual elevation, the leaders had allowed it to become an underground hole for robbers or highway bandits or people whose main goal is craftily to shake out the pockets of the unsuspecting. The temple, says Jesus, went from a place of safety where we can bear our hearts in confidence to a place where we must always be on our guard for the schemes of some hidden figure or hidden motive who want something far more from us than they want something for us. The question we have to ask is, how does this shift happen? How does a spiritual space, or we might say a spiritual community, or we might even look with honesty at our hearts, our spiritual heart, how does it move from a wide open space, place, uh, wide open safe place marked by awe to a closed down cave system of self-protection? How does our brokenness turn into rebellion? Well, the first thing is this. I think we have to admit that we are creatures of submission, whether we like it or not. I always have in mind when I think about this, you know that, uh, sorry to do Marvel with you guys, but you know that scene where Loki comes and he gives that speech in one of the Avengers movies where he's like, freedom, it is a false thing. And it's like, you know, you're only free if I can lord it over you. And it's like, oh, I think Loki was right. We are creatures of submission, whether we like it or not. We are created to give our hand in devotion to some good and strong authority. And you can see this all around us. This is just the way we're made, the way that we grasp after positions of authority, the way that advertisement works. You know, they sell us soap, and all of a sudden they're selling us romance. You know, it's like this, and desirability. Like, we're, we, are, we are people who reach up towards something more. It's built in us. Or how Apple, when they knew to, how to dominate the cell phone market, they're not just out there selling phones, but they're selling repositories of memories. If you don't have an iPhone, you won't have memories. That's the message. Or a tool that's actually going to build a good family for you. That's what they have to do because they're linking into this desire for something more in us. We see this in the way politicians go about their business playing on our human impulse, impulse for loyalty. And we see this in how addictions work and how really humans only get free from addictions once they admit that there's a higher power. 
It's why the history of humanity goes hand in hand with the history of religion. And why, as we're finding out, Facebook's algorithms are really built on exploiting the human tendency to loyalty to a group or to an idea or a movement. We're not really radically autonomous creatures. We are creatures of devotion. And if we think otherwise, it's likely that we're devoted to some authority which has come in sneakily uh, in a way that we can't even see that it's there under our radars. But the problem, this the perennial human problem, how does this place of prayer turn into a place of robbers? The, the perennial human problem is that there are other forces out there who are asking for our devotion. And when they do, it's often undercover. They sneak themselves in, they mask themselves in plain sight. In this moment in Jesus' life, this house of prayer becomes a noisy place of commerce. I mean, think about it. This is a place meant to create space for the opening of one's heart through the process of sacrifice. Sacrificing a dove or a, a lamb. But the sacrifice itself becomes the point of the place. The materials for sacrifice become the great distraction for the actual work of prayer. This is us exercising for the sake of getting into the right body physique, whether it's ours or whether it's not, rather than for the sake of health. This is the accumulation of wealth for security, rather than using of wealth to heal the world. This is our de desire to collect books, to make a facade of learnedness in our bookshelves, when really we were not even after learning. Sorry, I'm just admitting to some sins here. I got a lot of books on my shelf. We are masters as human beings of allowing that which is meant to serve us to become our goal, our final point. This is how this happens, and we call it idolatry. We are prone to be servants. We're regularly duped into serving something less than the highest authorities in our life, and the consequences are really serious, guys. Being in a den of robbers sounds to me like a crippling kind of place to be where we're constantly guarding our reputations, our, guarding our ambitions, where really we just turn into another robber rather than being a person of prayer. And the worst case scenario is that the, when the real master of the universe shows up, the real author of life comes to clean us out, our response is not openness. We defend our projects from God at all costs. And that's the nature of unbelief. We talk a lot about doubt being this double-mindedness, this I want to believe, but I've got legitimate questions I need to ask. I've got, I want to believe, but there are legitimate problems that I haven't solved. And as far as I can tell, and I think Dr. Song sh uh, shared this beautifully a few weeks ago, Jesus is very comfortable and very compassionate with doubt. I mean, that's what we just see in him. But the religious leaders were different. They weren't doubting, they were marked by unbelief, which was when Jesus himself showed up in the temple, their response was, even if I see you in the flesh, I will not believe. And Jesus has a lot of hard words to say against this kind of guarding our projects against him. When life itself stares us in the face and then we choose death, over life. We're in a pretty precarious situation.
So what I'm saying here is that if we are people of faith and wanting to keep our temples in order, we must regularly be open to some temple clearing. And there's a lot of ways to do that. And, and I think that to me there's one that really stands out that I want to share before I end today. We must regularly ask ourselves how we're devoting our time and energy and ask of our devotion, what do you want for me? This is kind of us protecting ourselves a bit. We must regularly be willing to take stock of what we're giving ourselves to. I'm not talking about becoming the center of your universe as we do, this is always bad for us. I'm talking about the kind of boundary making um, that regularly assesses the worth of our projects. So here's the question. What I'm proposing is that we find ways to ask and inquire about the direction of support. What do you want for me? I'm suggesting that this becomes a real question that we ask of the, the things we invest in. So think about that. Wouldn't that be an interesting question? Social media, what do you want for me versus what do you want from me? Um, I would say once a quarter, and you can do this today, this is very practical, once a quarter, take stock actually of where you're investing your time. It might be schoolwork, likely. Schoolwork, what do you want from me versus what do you want for me? This is, these, these things aren't bad, of course. I'm not saying don't do your schoolwork. But we have to put them in the right order, right? Put them in the right place. Relationships. You can, you can think of individual relationships. You might have the courage. Don't do, don't do this accusingly. Hey, what do you want for me versus what do you want from me? Work study. What do you want for me? And it might be Jesus. Jesus, what do you want for me versus what do you want from me? And I think if I have any sort of sense of experience with this, that when we move away from Jesus is when we start believing that he wants something from us far more than he wants something for us. Oh man, I've got too much today to share with you. I'll just have to put it in next time's sermon. I think that, I'll just leave us with this. Um, We... Jesus regularly invites us to ask that question of him. He's not afraid of that question. In fact, I think he really loves it when we bring ourselves to do it. Um, And what we find when we do this and when we actually take the time to study Jesus, when we actually take the time to allow him to speak into our life, we'll find that he wants something far more for us than he wants from us. And what he wants from us, he'll regularly use to help build up and be for the sake of others. He doesn't use us like humans and false authorities do. And when we study him, when we look at him, we find that he is so worthy of our devotion. Because when the scriptures want to talk about Jesus and this topic, here's what they say. Paul. I died to the law, Galatians 2, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ, and yet it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me 
and gave himself for me. John chapter 1, what has come into being in him was life, and he was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. We have seen his glory, the glory as of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. In Revelation 5, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. So again, Jesus is worthy. We've got a few more uh, messages from Mark for you guys for the rest of the semester as we, we head to the end. And uh, I get to be back here uh, to share with you the good news of his resurrection in a few weeks. But Jesus is worthy, guys, not just because the Bible tells you so, but because of the many things, including his willingness to discern in our hearts where brokenness and rebellion exists and to come and clear and clean out the rebellion. Jesus is the best of all things that has ever been and ever will be. And he leaves his hand open daily for us, for those who might take it and find again life and truth. Amen. Thanks for listening to this episode of the John Brown University Chapel Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes or whatever platform you're listening on, and we'd love it if you would leave us a review.